What is poppin', my funky homo sapiens? Welcome back to Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. My name is Gerardo Munoz, and I am cruising with you solo. As Kevin is away on family business. But don't worry, he still loves you. As always, we are the People's Podcast. We are out here remixing the discourse about race, power, and education. If you want to interact with us, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Two Dope Teachers on both platforms. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash two dope teachers and uh mike that's kind of long but you can just search it up and we will come up we promise you to get updates directly from our rss head over to mrmunoz.org mr is spelled out and subscribe we're also on apple podcasts and spotify and if you want to support this work financially consider contributing to our patreon where you will find exclusive content access and a heads up on upcoming episodes patreon.com slash two dope teachers with kevin away i sat down with the amazing emily santiago from the center for cognitive diversity this is an organization that specializes in promoting mental health organizationally in schools and beyond um you can find out more about their work at cogdiv.org um, and she's going to share her wisdom and insights about trauma-informed practice. Timely chat for this moment of a pandemic and just a lot of stress and chaos that we kind of have feeling around us. So uh, we hope you enjoy this episode, and we will catch you on the other side. Peace. Everybody. We are here with Emily Santiago from the Center for Cognitive Diversity. Emily, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good. We are in December. It's uh, it's such an odd time of year, especially given these, uh, these times. And we just really appreciate you taking uh, the time to, to spend some time with the podcast and talk a little bit about uh, the work that you do. Absolutely. And I'm amazed you make time for a podcast with all that you're juggling. So thank you for making time to have me on. Yeah, uh, argu arguably, this is my therapy in a lot of ways. Um, and we, uh, we get a lot out of this. Um, but thank you. No, it's great. So we're going to talk a little bit about trauma-informed practices in school and um, the work that you do with the Center for Cognitive Diversity. Could you start off by just giving us a little bio of who you are and um, and how you arrived at a place where you wanted to do this work? Yeah, um, sure. I've been in education for 23 years and I really started uh, when I was in college. I wanted to be a scientist and then I, I saw that being a teacher is really what creates our democracy. And so I, I moved, I became a okay. teacher, and I was super lucky that I was an aide in a, in a Montessori classroom in Cambridge, which really set this foundation of like a deep love and respect for kids and this mantra that we control the environment, not the child. And yeah. so from there, I was recruited to teach in Oakland, California. So moved across the country, started teaching second grade in Oakland, and I was a well-trained teacher, you know, fully prepared, fully yep. credentialed. Yep. But I walked in my first week of school. I'm making a bulletin board, reach for the stars, and yep. interviewing my second graders what they want to be when they grow up. Mm -hmm. And one of my students, I'll just call her Larissa, she just said, I'm not going to live that long. And it just wow. hit me like a wow. wall. Not only, not only that our children are experiencing such deep level of trauma that they're fearing for their lives but that she was so nonchalant about it she had just kind of yeah it sounds like she was really resigned to it just resigned to it this is just the thing that's going to happen wow and so i you know that just deeply impacted me and the work of being a teacher in oakland um just the the impact of trauma was so intense and we weren't talking about it in the 90s you know we no definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lockdown there's a gunman outside we're laying on the floor and then they're like get up do the attendance and then they want to talk about an achievement gap as this abstract term and yep. then we're losing 50 percent of our teachers every year so all the relationships are disrupted so you know um 
I think from the beginning, my work in education has been deeply tied to addressing trauma. And from there, I, um, I went overseas and taught in international schools and I came back and became a school psychologist because I saw the impact of the work on myself. I saw it on my students and um, I wanted to, to focus on the emotional well-being of, of students. Uh, and then I became a school psychologist in Richmond, California, okay. where we um, worked systemically. We built full service community schools, did mindfulness, um, and really turned around the climate of schools where kids were able to be successful and not um, constantly in this cycle of, of getting suspended and right. um, having low, low test scores. But ultimately we were still losing 50% of our teachers. Wow. So that's when I shifted my focus from working directly in schools to working with educators around the country. And, yeah. and we developed a program to, to build the emotional resilience of educators. That's amazing. Uh -huh. I think that you're, um, you know, to, because I think a lot of us who entered education at any point who um, value these kinds of things, and I would say the majority of educators really, really value uh, the whole child and social emotional well-being. Um, but a lot of us, and, and when I say a lot of us, I mean me, I've been taught to use I statements. Um, mm -hmm. I sort of have found myself over the course of 21 and a half years, just trying to kind of make it work. And, you know, yes, the academics, okay, now, how do I find dedicated space to support my students? Emotionally, it sounds like you saw that incongruency almost immediately, that what I'm doing academically is really hard to square knowing the level of trauma but that my students and their communities are experiencing. I think that foundation in Montessori schools where you have an unwavering yeah. respect for kids, that you don't see kids as the problem ever, helped me see that right away, that there's something systemically going on, right? That, um, that I trust that children are amazing and incredible That's right. and That's their right. development is, is powerful and I have to respect that. And I didn't, I saw that being contradicted when I went into public schools. And yeah. if I hadn't had that foundation, I think I would have leaned more deeply towards that, that paradigm and had to unlearn yeah. that whole belief that we've got to punish kids or kids have bad behavior. Yeah. Their behavior is indicating to us that something is wrong. You know, right. it's not that our yeah. kids are bad and they, they're doing something to cause right. difficulty and all of those things. That's so right. I think that really helped me that I had that foundation and I could see, see through that and see that kids are needing paths to, to agency and resilience and, right. and we've got to adapt ourselves. So, yeah, I love yeah. that. And, and, you know, the, the foundation in Montessori, especially for me, when I think of Montessori, my spouse did Montessori work for a couple of years. And one thing I learned just from observing from afar is, um, is that there's this value on community um, that's really important as well. And so um, it, it sort of grows into we we accept you and you value and we value you. I, I think that's that's such a hot take in this kind of um, in this in this very production oriented version of education that we see where it's like, actually, maybe the students are exactly who they need to be. And it's our job to ensure that they have proper supports and when they act out and when they get frustrated and when they make poor choices, it's indicative of something bigger. That student is not simply trying to harm you or upset you or disrupt your teaching. That is not what any child walks into the classroom wanting to do. Absolutely. And it's interesting, Montessori is now this elite thing in America, but it was created in orphanages in yep. Italy. And so it was made for kids who've experienced trauma. It was yeah. made for kids who were in poverty and who were impacted by adversity. And, um, and so we've got to go back to kind of those principles of, of deep love and respect for kids. And yeah. how do we adapt the environment to give them that agency and control yeah. that they need to yep. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, can you give kind of a working definition for yourself of what trauma-informed means? I think just, I mean, I'm sure you see it in your work with educators and with schools. This is a phrase that a lot of people are using right now. Um, I personally am not always convinced that they, that we all mean the same thing when we say it. So can you give us from your experience kind of what that phrase means? I think that's a great question because it's such a complex concept. And in our current culture, we yeah, just like words and we take the meaning out of it. Mm -hmm. 
and we apply oh, I'm it. supposed to be talking about trauma-informed, so I'm going to say trauma-informed because everybody's saying trauma-informed. <laughs> yeah, and you do mindfulness 10 minutes a day, and all of a sudden it's trauma-informed. No, it's, That's right. it's a huge paradigm shift, just like we talked about, of looking, not looking at people as the problem, that we see that there is a deeper thing going on that has impacted someone and that we need to create an environment that heals and empowers. And that is pretty abstract because it's unique to the community. Um, and it's unique to the individual what their path to resilience is. And so it's up to us to, in a trauma-informed environment to see that trauma is impacting somebody's ability to, to, to function in the way that they truly want to function, like to be successful. And they're in survival mode. And so for so long, we have pathologized survival skills. Like That's right. Advocacy, resistance, like saying no to an adult is a survival yeah. skill for somebody who's impacted by trauma. Yeah. Withdrawing least, from a situation is, is yeah. a way that you are reacting through trauma. Wow. No, that's really deep. Um, um, so yeah. ultimately, to heal from trauma, you need to be seen and heard for who you are and accepted you need to have agency and control over your life because you've, you've lost control and you need to be loved no matter what. Um, yeah. Because especially with our children, when they have been impacted by trauma in development, it shifts their sense of self to internalizing and blaming themselves for what has right. happened. Right. And as adults, we need to stick with them and show them that they're worthy of love no matter what. And that's, I think the core of the work is to show a child that they are worthy of love no matter what, no matter what their behavior yeah. is, no matter how many times that behavior persists, yep. that yep. they are inherently lovable and wonderful people. So. Yeah. It, what's so striking is that, you know, in practice, it does feel very abstract, but it is, it is fairly, I wouldn't say, you know, simple, um, or I wouldn't say easy, but I would say it's simple, right? Um, the, the simple perspective is that if, if we accept that people are not the problem when we have these struggles as a society, then it forces us to look at, well, what is the problem? And how do we kind of look at that? And it, that seems like the kind of thing you, you can start a professional development around is saying, so the first assumption we're going to make is that people are not the problem. Does that sound accurate to you? Absolutely. Yeah, that the unconditional regard for the individual. The hard work is not loving kids no matter what. The hard work is dismantling all those barriers that are in place that, that keep a child from being resilient, that keep a child from being um, those things like that urgency to always be focused on the academic scores. Like, of course, we don't have high expectations, but when we have so much pressure to meet uh, an enormous amount of standards, it disrupts our relationship with children or a system that's designed to use punishment to change behavior. And we're pressured to, to feed into that system. All those things in place are the hard part about doing trauma-informed work. We've got to unlearn those. We have to dismantle those yeah. in order to get back to um, prioritizing healing relationships. And Absolutely. That's great. This is so great. Like, I feel like this is my, my own like personal seminar and uh, mm -hmm. this is, um, you know, and even as somebody that I, I this is a, a major value that I bring into the classroom um, mm -hmm. to see, you know, to hear you say that it, the actual work is what's complex. The mindset may not be as complex, but how do we do the work to, to disrupt those things? Um, it, it's a really, it, it's just a really good thing, like for me to hear. So th we, we're starting to kind of segue into this topic, but can you speak a little bit to the urgency of doing that hard work? of dismantling the systems that cause children to come into traumatic situations before they even have a chance to be um, aware of what those are. Yeah, I mean, even before COVID, I think we were in a mental health crisis in America for adults and for children. We saw an enormous rise in, in suicidal ideation and in attempts with our teens. Right high rates of depression and something's going on there and that that is a trauma in itself even if it's not a specific event someone has experienced something right. traumatizing is going on that's that's yeah. impacting so much of our youth um i personally i had a team of therapists working with me in in schools to address trauma and we could never quite 
meet all the needs that were there. So we really have to look systemically at the change that's going on. And um, I think it comes down to a few things is that we are wired for connection as human beings, and that's what helps us heal, right? Literally, when you are stressed, you, you get cortisol in your body, and that cortisol might help you survive an immediate threat but in the long term, it stops your body from physically healing. It disrupts our ability to focus. Um, it changes our whole digestive system. Everything um, that stress does is countered by connection, by the release of oxytocin in our body. Um, so I believe that a lot of our relationships now are, are so at a surface level, they're, they're over technology, you know, it's a lot of likes on Facebook and all of that. And those aren't eliciting that healing relationship that we need. Our, our parents of our students are working long hours at jobs that trap them in poverty, and that disrupts the relationships that they need. The addiction to um, our phones. Uh, we often worry about kids using technology, but it's what I saw working with kids um, who were suicidal, when I'd ask them, who do you go to when you need help? They'd say, well, I used to go to my mom, but now she's always on her phone. So the technology has really disrupted our ability to connect with kids. And and that's the core of what we need. We see, um, there's a lot of research done on like, what are the benefits of therapy? Yeah. (laughs) Is that 98% of the benefit is the relationship. It's just having somebody deeply listen to you and hear you and not judge you. And it's often not about finding the solution for them. It's just right. listening in a way and mirroring their experience so that they feel understood. That's what helps us cope with, with difficult situations. And so much of the time, that simple act of deeply listening and, and being heard is disruptive. So. Yeah. That, that that's so interesting you know when when we talk about the technology aspect the the go-to is to say well kids are depressed because they're always on their phones and what I hear you saying is that technology plays a role for all people who are using it but that what's really happening is that these incidences of depression anxiety suicidal ideation actually come from a lack of connection to people um, and, and as adults, we're often kind of culpable in, in, in that situation when it comes to supporting young people. Mm-hmm. I think as adults, we've got to look at our own behavior. Right now, we're using technology to connect. And we're, yep. we're using it in a way that's a more meaningful connection. Mm-hmm. But it's so easy to feel we're connected to people by, by putting a like on their, on their post. That's right. That's right. Or something like that. And that gives us a little bit of dopamine, but we don't get the oxytocin we need from that kind of connection. And yep. it takes a little bit more work to cultivate a, a deeper, more healing connection over, over technology, or it takes a little bit more work to get rid of those distractions and to really just sit with our, our students or sit with our, our own children and, and listen and be there when they're going through difficult emotions and not get nervous about those emotions. Just right. sit with them and say, I see how you're feeling right now. And that's tough. Yeah. And that's a difficult feeling, but I'm here for you. Yeah. Not to immediately jump and say, Oh, you know what you can do? This is, this will help. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is also a barrier to, yeah. to can you, uh, you said something that I thought that I think is really worth exploring and this idea that um, the emotions of young people make us nervous. And uh, can you say more about that? Because I think that's, first of all, I've definitely experienced that uh, both professionally and personally as a parent, but can you say more about that? I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I think our culture is addicted to happiness, right? We have this message that we have to be happy all the time and that's that normal state to be in. Well, right now, it's not easy to be happy. <laughs> no, like, not at all. And, and we worry that if somebody is feeling unhappy, that that's gonna be a state that they get stuck in. And mm-hmm. so we're very quick to say, oh, don't feel that way, let's change it. And actually that process of, of suppressing how we truly feel is what makes us hold that trauma, hold that pain in our body longer. When we, when we process it and we feel it, we're able to kind of metabolize it and let it go. 
you know? So uh, I have a daughter, she's a preteen and there's been moments where it's been really difficult for her right now to not be around kids. And, and, uh, and when I see her in that state of being really miserable, I'm like, you're feeling really overwhelmed right now. Right. And she's like, I am. And just that moment of like, sitting with her and not saying I'm going to fix it for you or it's a problem and we need to do something about it. All you have to do is, is, you know, this, this thing, make a list and everything will be fine. Yep. I don't need a solution for her. I don't need to tell her to feel another way. All I need to do is, is actually just mirror. That's what people need to heal. They need to be deeply seen. I need to acknowledge how you're feeling and show you, I understand that. Um, and that's what great teachers do. I imagine you, Gerardo, you know, your teacher of the year, like a big part of it must be centered around relationships. It's not just like the creative and amazing ways you integrate instruction into your days. It's probably the way that you connect that to children's experience so that they feel seen and understood in their learning. Yeah. And that is, that is a trauma-informed practice. Yeah, wow. No, that's, that's, that's really interesting to hear because I think that um, in terms of my instruction and my own planning during um, during the pandemic, um, it it has been below my standard for myself. You know, it's just kind of like, you know, I, I was telling somebody the other day that, you know, yes, this is kind of like being a brand new teacher all over again, but it also feels like I'm a brand new teacher and we're just starting like the institution of education. Like we've never had education before. So we're, we're building something from the ground up and, um, and, it, and it does, I do, you know, without being boastful, I do get a lot of really positive feedback from my students about how much they like my vibe and they like being in my classes and they miss being able to walk into my room. And I, and I struggle sometimes to say, well, what what am I even doing? And maybe it is that, that we connect on a human level that I think is really important. So, so to those teachers out there who are listening to this, who feel overwhelmed by the, um, by what feels like this like really big responsibility around trauma-informed practice if you are just mirroring them and showing empathy and and showing care about them as people you're you're taking an important step is that accurate yeah i there are so many people who are doing trauma-informed work and we're not acknowledging it so one big movement has been just to acknowledge that building relationships is valuable and important and an essential part of learning and Um, we often don't acknowledge that. And so teachers are giving so much and, and to have that not be seen and recognized, that's what leads to that burnout, right? Like you see the teacher that can connect with kids who, who are going through a lot and have a lot of challenging behavior and they persist and they love them no matter what, that, that is a huge amount of work that isn't recognized. And what happening in our schools is when we don't recognize that work and we only value the the academic piece yeah then um then the impact is much greater so if we if we acknowledge that this is valuable and essential and we celebrate that which is what we try and do with the trauma-informed movement is really celebrate that you care about a kid through through the tough times like that you stick with them and you believe in them no matter what, and that is valuable and backed by research. We kind of, it's, it's a gut reaction that most great educators do is mm-hmm. to build relationships. Yep. Um, but we need to bring that back to the forefront and, and, yeah. and do that as, as the core of good instruction. Yeah. Speaking of educators, so you've hinted a couple of different times about um, high attrition rates um, of, of educators. You, you said in in uh, in the area where you were, some of these attrition rates were as high as 50%. And then in a previous question, you also talked a little bit about burnout among teachers. Mm-hmm. What does trauma-informed practice look? Um, because it, this strikes me as an institutional whole organization thing. It's not just something that teachers shoulder and do for mm-hmm. kids. What does is, what is good trauma-informed practice look, look like for educators, for people who are doing this work every day with kids in communities? Absolutely. The focus really has to be on the educator. It has to be on the well-being of the adult because we co-regulate. We connect with kids and they pick up our our emotional state. If we are maxed out, if we are, you know, emotionally overwhelmed, children are going to feel that and they are going to follow suit. So we really do need our teachers to 
to, to be taken care of. And there's been that movement for self-care, but even that movement, we need to move towards collective. Yeah, talk about that, yeah. Yeah, so um, I have this mantra of like, burnout is a community issue, not an individual one. We've really, wow. we've acknowledged that burnout exists. Educators have some of the highest rates of burnout of any profession um, because we really are first responders. We are responding to, and, wow. and connecting with kids who are deeply impacted by kind of the traumas of society right now. Um, and that's hard work. And um, to, to add self-care to the plate of people who are already not only emotionally saturated, but like being hit with a tidal wave of trauma is too right. much. We really mm -hmm. need that collective experience. And um, personally, I've been searching for years for the solution to that. And I think it comes yeah. down to more of a peer support model, like making space for for educators to be able to talk about the work and, yeah. and how it impacts them. It's not just yeah. take time for yourself, take a bubble bath and you'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. It really is like build a community of people who listen to each other and make time for that and talk about what's happening with the work because yeah. um, we second guess ourselves, we question ourselves or we, um, when we don't feel seen and heard as professionals, um, our emotional resilience is undermined. So we also act out when we are unhappy and it makes it really hard for people to be around us. It's just kind of what happens with our young people. Absolutely. The more stressed we are, the more exposed to trauma we are, the more we exhibit, um, you know, trauma response, which can be toxic behaviors. We can be angry. We can be dogmatic. We can yeah. you know, shut down and not be open to listening. And, right. um, and so the, the cure for that is really to, to connect with each other, to acknowledge that this is happening and it's not part of your personality, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And to stop isolating people. Like for so long we see that behavior and we isolate them. We don't. It's like, oh, that's a, that's a complainer over there. I don't want to be around that person. What we need is compassion. What we need is, is to not be judged in this moment and, and to be loved and to be acknowledged that we're trying the best we can. And, and that's going to help us get through that and to be there for kids. You, you've got me reflecting on um, some of the snap judgments I made about some of my colleagues in the past. And, um, and I think it's an important reflection that we, that we have there. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. We have a very judgmental culture in education and yeah. you do, when, when you understand the impact of trauma, you, ch you change the way you view yourself, you change the way you view your students and you change the way you view your colleagues. Wow. And, and it actually makes you more deeply hopeful because you see the solutions, the more sustainable yeah. solutions, rather than just addressing huge challenges in society and in schools, we actually come up with, with um, lasting solutions. Yeah, that's incredible. I feel like each of these questions could be an episode on its own. You know, you start getting so deeply into things and, and it, it starts opening up these new possibilities for how we can make the choice to reframe the things that we're experiencing and seeing. And, and what I hear you saying is it, it's not that there's something wrong with me per se, or if there's something going on with me, that there is likely a bigger picture to it, that there's likely other things outside of my own choices and experiences that are worth looking at and, and understanding. Yeah. Instead of telling the individual to be resilient, we have to, create environments where resilience is possible, is what I like wow. to say. Wow. Look around, everybody is gonna be resilient if they have the paths to agency. And I know yeah. we were gonna talk about like racism and oppression in our society, yeah. but that's yeah. the aspect that if you are experiencing racism, if your opportunities for agency and to be heard are limited, then your path to resilience is limited. But as a society, we often go back and look at that person and say, oh, that person wasn't resilient. Right. Uh, the research shows people have gone through some really difficult things in their life. Like yeah. there's, there's been adversity throughout the human experience. Mm. But when we have our, 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 our past resilience limited, if we're judged for our behavior all the time, if we are not given the opportunity for to have control over our lives in, in some aspect, then we're not going to heal. And then we're going to struggle. Yeah. And um, if we then blame the individual for that, uh, it just intensifies a negative outcome for that person. Wow. So. Yeah, that's incredibly deep. So um, one more question before we go to break. 
Um, mm-hmm. So you're, you're part of this larger collective um, that is the Center for Cognitive Diversity um, and just amazing resources. Everybody, when, when you listen to this episode, we'll have their website linked uh, to the episode page. You can check out some of their work. Um, I was actually really excited to find the COVID ER plan um, that, that came, you know, as, as sort of um, a look at this. And it gave me great insight on what my seventh graders were really experiencing. And, and to your point, um, it does seem like the, the sort of uh, young teens, the middle school ages are, you know, just anecdotally seem like they're having the hardest time with this um, of any of the age groups. And I think that's been really interesting to see. Um, but can you talk about what the organization does and, and, th- and talk about this phrase cognitive diversity? I think, I think it's such a fantastic way to frame this, but I'd love to hear you say something about that. Yeah. Thank you. So I founded the, Cog- the Center for Cognitive Diversity in 2017 yep. when I was teaching at Cal State East Bay in the Ed Psych Department. So we were looking at the impact of trauma, even in our ed psych department, we hadn't really been talking about trauma very much. You know, wow. We talked about emotional disturbance and we talk about learning disabilities and autism, but the actual impact of trauma wasn't, isn't still really addressed in a lot of teacher prep programs in school psych programs. And so we acknowledge that that needed to be done, but it needs to be done in a way that's not just shifting our focus and continuing to have deficit thinking. Right. As a school psychologist, I'm constantly pushed into a role to to assess a student, find out what's wrong with them and put some interventions in place. Right. And that whole mindset is is a broken. Yeah, that core assumption that there is something wrong with this child that we have to help them manage. Right. As opposed to. (laughs) Yeah. As opposed to recognizing that cognitive diversity is a normal, natural and really important aspect of our society and we should be developing environments that celebrate that whether it is a child that uh is bilingual and speaks multiple languages right now we see that child as an english language learner and that they are suddenly behind in learning english when actually they have you know this amazing advantage to yeah we had a student uh kevin and i talk about this student we had a while back um a kenyan student from a bantu background and I remember having this conversation about, about them doing English as a second language. And, the, and this young man just joked, he's like, I mean, it wouldn't be my second language, it'd be my seventh language. <laughs> because, you know, yeah. growing, being born into the community he was born into, you know, it, it's like, how are we going to tell, how are we going to define this kid by the one language he's not that strong in when there's six other languages he is actually strong in. So that deficit mind, I hadn't thought about language learners as also fitting into this framework of cognitive diversity, but it it makes total sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, kids who've experienced trauma are are cognitively diverse. They are wired for survival. We are not looking at them as a child who is a problem or has problems. A child who's had a radically different experience and is uh, focused on, you know, surviving in a dangerous world. So that means that they might resist you know, adults, and that's a good thing to do in a dangerous world. And if we pathologize that, if we say that there's something wrong with them for for resisting or something wrong with them for being hypervigilant and on alert for, for things going on in society, then, then we're taking away something that they need to survive. Um, and if we focus on the needs of kids with trauma, actually, we're gonna create environments that are, are better for all students. Uh, because you're creating a more compassionate and innovative system of education. Kids yeah. that have experienced trauma, they'll go into the classroom, you put worksheets in front of them, they're going to do those worksheets, right? They're like, sure. this, you know, because they have their needs met, they have, um, they have a sense of control outside of the classroom. But for kids with trauma, the classroom might be the only safe place for them to, to assert a sense of control. Right. And, if we suppress that, we're actually suppressing that for all kids. We should be creating environments where kids have agency, where they have control, where they have choice, where they feel their experiences are reflected in the curriculum. That's good right. teaching for everybody. Yeah. So if we celebrate cognitive diversity, if we see that every child that comes in the classroom has something valuable to offer us and we can learn from that, then right. we're going to create 
the educational system of the future that we need. That's amazing. You know, as, as I'm speaking with you, the, the thing that just keeps on standing out to me is that if we improve our treatment and acceptance of, um, of human beings in general, um, then, then you actually create these environments. And, and then I kind of connect, and this will kind of serve as a segue into the next segment. Um, I kind of connect this to the, to, the, to the philosophy of Black Lives Matter, which is to say, it's, it's not to say that only Black Lives Matter, it's to say that there are systemic practices and tools of oppression that were designed and uniquely harm uh, Black Americans um, but if we get these in place, this is actually good for everybody, that if we're able to disrupt these systems, then everyone benefits. Um, but we have to know and we have to see who is the most harmed by these things. And it sounds like um, that's a similar mindset around trauma-informed practice, that you, you do this knowing that you have students who are walking into your classroom with significant amounts of trauma, and if you can create an environment that feels safe for them, well, then that's forever. And the flip side, if you sanction and regulate and punish um, these these behaviors, um, the other students see it and they're like, oh, that is not a teacher I can joke with. That is not a teacher I can challenge. That is not a teacher who is willing to accept my mistakes. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to learn in that environment as well, any child. Um, and you're right, it's a myth, this very individualistic culture we have, it's a myth that we're going to be okay if other people aren't okay. Right. If someone in my society is experiencing oppression and, and racism, I can pretend to ignore that as a white woman, right. but I'm going to be deeply impacted by that too. And uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere and whatnot, but yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, folks, my guest today is Emily Santiago from the Center from Cognitive Diversity. We're going to take, take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the intersections of trauma-informed practice and anti-racism. Don't go away. What is good, two dope peoples? We've had a really good week, thanks to you. We launched our Patreon about a week ago, and 36 of you have stepped up to ensure that we keep bringing you the content that remixes the conversation about race, power, and education. We have big hopes and dreams that you have inspired, and with your support, those dreams begin to take shape in reality in the coming weeks, when you will learn about projects we can now go forward with, because you stepped up. We still have numerous projects filed away that are waiting for your support. You can support by visiting patreon.com slash 2DopeTeachers. Patrons who joined at the 2Dope level get a 2Dope Nation sticker designed by local Colorado artist Sham. Patrons will enjoy access to 2Dope Teachers, hit Arlo and Kevin in the form of Ask Me Anything threads, throwbacks to old ep episodes, occasional Zoom meetings, and sneak previews to upcoming work and public appearances. Like there is already a new secret project that patrons have been told about. Get in on the conversation. We asked and you responded. We look forward to learning and growing with you. Let's keep remixing the conversation on race, power, and education. What's good, folks? Uh, this is Gerardo Munoz Sands, Kevin Adams today. Kev is away on some family business for this episode, um, but don't worry, he'll be back. He loves you. Also, um, wish him a happy belated birthday. His birthday was on Saturday or Sunday, um, December 13th, and uh, hit him up and bother him um, on social media for that. Uh, I'm here speaking with Emily Santiago of the Center for Cognitive Diversity, and we're talking about mental health supports, trauma-informed practice, and um, and supporting our whole students. And right before the break, we started talking a little bit about the presence of injustice and the types of trauma that students um, may experience. And in many cases, if you're teaching in an urban area, um, you are teaching in a, and you're teaching in a public school, you are teaching primarily students of color whose um, racial traumas um, are there, whether they acknowledge them as such or not. So um, one thing that I've really enjoyed your thoughts on, and, and you have some pretty strong statements about this, which I love, um, is this intersection between trauma-informed practice, cognitive diversity, 
and um, anti-racist practice. Can you speak a little bit about where those intersections live and why they matter? Yeah, I mean, to experience trauma is not an event itself, but is actually the way that we're able to, to cope with adversity, right? If, if we go through something difficult and people acknowledge what has happened to us, they surround us with love, they give us an ability to do something about what has happened, we're gonna be much more likely to heal from that experience. Oh. And that's really how, I mean, racism impacts our students in so many ways, but for, for our students in the classroom, if you don't see them for who they truly are, if you are, uh, don't understand who they are, if you have, have your own bias that masks your, your understanding yep. of your students, that is disrupting that relationship. It's disrupting that path to healing. And then in addition, if kids aren't given agency and voice over and control over what happens to them, yeah. then, um, then, then their path to, to healing is really limited. So what we see in our society through oppression is that kids aren't given the same voice. Right. Um, we saw what happened in Parkland with the shooting. Yep. Uh, all of a sudden kids had this platform for speaking about what happened. The news agency yeah. picked it up. They yep. acknowledged it. Everybody noticed like this happened to you. This was really bad. And they were, they were given this platform to speak and to, Definitely. which is amazing. Yeah. Um, versus my students in Richmond, California, they experience gun violence yep. and, uh, They'll come to school the next day. People won't even acknowledge it has happened to them. And they'll just say, yeah. where's your homework? You know? yep. yeah. Yeah. Why are we not acknowledging what's happened? And yeah. why, uh, why aren't they given a, a similar platform to be able to take action and do something about what's happening? Yeah. Um, and that comes down to racism, a lack of trust, a lack of belief that, um, you know, that we can change these situations. Yeah. So... But I love the quote by Dina Simmons, who says, yeah. if you're not addressing racism, you're not addressing trauma, you're not addressing trauma. Like yeah. that, it's the core of the work that if you are not creating a safe environment for your students, then it's not trauma informed. And a safe environment means a safe adult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, like, honestly, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I had a I had an experience that I'm thinking about as you as you share this um, of a young so I'm I'm Mexican American um, my a young Mexican American man in my in one of my classes um, had complained to his mother that um, I don't think Mr Munoz likes me I just don't think he likes me and I remember that it was brought to my attention and I remember thinking to myself well that's wild. Like what, what would cause this young man to, to, um, to say that about me? And then I start reflecting on some of my lack of patience with him. Um, the way I was easy to frustrate the things that he did that would sort that would get me frustrated. And as I kind of reflected on it, I realized that it's because so many of the young men that I grew up with didn't make it out of high school. Um, and they were victims of all sorts of things, violence, exploitation, um, crime, those kinds of things. And I realized that because I had seen that, I, I, I was on pins and needles with my young men of color. And mm -hmm. while I had told myself that I was motivated by my love of them, it's not what it felt like to them. Mm -hmm. And so when I, as you sort of explain this and how the, the teacher is, is, the safety in, in a classroom, um, as you kind of explain that, I realize, oh, so that, that was my own trauma, um, you know, expressed in this way and kind of unleashed on, you know, these, these young people. Um, and, it, and, you know, uh, it's just a really interesting thing to kind of realize that, you know, we've all got these biases, biases and, you know, sometimes what we think looks like love um, doesn't look like love and, and maybe isn't really we're projecting our fears on children and our, you know, like what we're told in society is that, you know, the outcomes for, for black children are, 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 are worse, that they're gonna end up in prison and, and all of these things. And then we go and become more oppressive to try to control that. Right. When 
when we are faced with traumas, we try and we, we seek control. In the age of COVID, we're yeah. seeking control of our situation because we're impacted by trauma. Um, and what's happening is that we remove the control from children. So uh, our kids need that agency. They need that ability to make choices and to be trusted to make decisions. But um, when we are impacted by racism, even if we don't believe we're racist ourselves, we're still projecting that fear on our students. And, right. we're, and we're taking away their control as a result. Yeah. You see classrooms and, and schools which have um, high populations of kids of color, then they, they have a lot less freedoms. You know, there's a lot more uniform rules. There's a lot more regulation. And that comes out of that fear and that lack of trust of our, of our students. And if we can open it up, if we, we see that, when we create com full service community schools where you have small learning communities and you give kids choice over their, what they're learning and, right. and flexibility, they thrive, they flourish. But so often we, we fail to, to give them those opportunities because we're afraid of these outcomes that have come out of society. They haven't come out of the kids. Right, know, so. right, right, definitely. No, that's, um, that's just so interesting. Um, the, um, you know, sort of early, earlier we talked a little bit about um, how trauma-informed lenses are needed for everybody in the community, not just for the students that, that, and you spoke a little bit to the, the ways that, that kind of take care of yourself, take a bubble bath, do what you want to do today. That kind of thing may be okay in the moment, but it doesn't do anything to sort of address the trauma. Um, where have you seen trauma or in what ways have you seen trauma informed practice work well? Um, both for uh, for adults in a community, but also for young people in a community. I think you you kind of referenced this when you talked about small learning communities and mm -hmm. flexibility in outcomes and interrogating fear based praxis, right? Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to liberatory practice praxis, which is to say, let's find ways that you can practice having control over the things that affect you in life. How does this sort of look in the schools that you've seen it work in? I think it can, it, it can work in different ways. The reality is sometimes we are in a school where we have a trauma-informed leader, right? And they create mm -hmm. a culture and a community where people can trust each other, where they can work together, where they can be open and vulnerable to address bias, to address burnout, to really yeah. talk about the challenges of the work. Like, it's yeah. really hard to love this kid in this moment, but I still need to. <laughs> yeah. You need to be open and honest and have that space and feel safe to do so. Some yeah. schools like that. Some schools are, are led by passionate, um, progressive leaders who, who hold that space. Yeah. But the vast majority of teachers I talk to, I work with teachers across America, um, the vast majority are not in those kind of environments. And they're kind of that individual who's doing trauma-informed work and second-guessing themselves because the whole system that they're working in is designed to, to punish kids, is, is right. taking away the sense of control, not only for students, but for teachers, you know. And in, in that setting, that's when we need to create those collective um, cultures of care for education, yeah. connect people, um, who are doing this work more in isolation. So right. having a podcast and talking about this work makes somebody else not feel alone. Right. Um, to, to create uh, cohorts of educators who meet and discuss the work that they're doing um, together is, is going to create that trauma-informed movement across the yeah. country. So, yeah. so some schools are holding space. My, my dream would be uh, having this model called reflective supervision in all of mm. us, which is a Tell model. me about that. That sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. As a therapist, when I'm trained to, to work with clients, I'm given supervision, right? I'm given yeah. time where I can just talk about the work, um, to think about how I made decisions and to, to really reflect on, on my own thought process and, and what's happening for me. I only work with 10 clients and I have that versus teachers yeah. who are working with a hundred kids and yep. never have a moment to really sit and talk about what's happening and, and the decisions they made and to feel accepted by their peers. So my dream yeah. is to 
to have that model in, in all school districts and offered for all teachers. Just that peer support circle where you can amazing. talk about what's happened. It could be two hours a month, you know, that yeah. it's just a space and a time to, to discuss the work with your peers and right. without it being driven by um, a set agenda. <laughs> yeah, an outcome, a measurable, you know, a deliverable, those kinds of things. Yeah. So many teachers, so many principals go to therapy right now to deal with yeah. the impact of the work on, on their well-being. And instead, I think we should just have an integrated system of peer support where it's not about me going to therapy because I have to be diagnosed with depression or, yeah. or, or PTSD. It's really that I'm going to therapy uh, or I'm going to peer support to, to talk about what's happening so that I can, I can, let go of, of second guessing myself. And, and, um, I talk about this sometimes with my students, you know, and I think it's easier to talk about things like therapy with, with my students than it was probably 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, when, you know, I think that, I think it's, it's been hard for the entire 21st century, but Mm -hmm. I do think that it is becoming more visible than it Mm -hmm. had been before. And I think more students are comfortable saying something about it, um, about being in therapy. And I remember commenting that, that I'm in therapy. I've been in therapy for 20 years. And, uh, and they're like, you're in therapy, mister? Like, what, you? And I say, y'all, I don't, I don't treat therapy like the ER. I treat therapy like the gym, you know? Like, so I'm not, I don't just go to my therapist when something bad happens in my life um, because I'm not actually developing, developing a relationship and tools that I need to just, you know, keep my head up. It's, it's like this, this process of keeping myself as strong as I can be and having an ongoing sort of practice. And so I think if we normalize that and systematize that, um, that can be so powerful. Love this idea of an integrated model where there's that, that's actually a big um, part of things. Uh, We'll see if capitalism allows it (laughs) because, you know, if it's not productive and measurable, I think it's often a very difficult sell for, for districts, but, um, but it, it just seems like the kind of thing that is so necessary right now. Um, you know, I, if this doesn't tell us that it is, I don't know what will. Yeah. I mean, it's, it could be expensive to hold space for, for staff, but it's also expensive to lose teachers, not only financially, but in those relationships. When we right. lose people every year in our schools, that, that's a loss of those connections. A kid doesn't get to come back to the school and, and find their teacher again. Yep. You don't have a teacher that knows your family members. You don't have yep. somebody who understands the community. And the loss, that's right. is, that's right. the loss is so much greater than financial. It's yeah. loss of relationships is, is so difficult to replace and so essential to the, to, to the healing that's going to need to happen in our society right. after, after COVID. You need people who know you. You need yeah. people who know your community um, when you come back to school. Yeah, that, that's so powerful. I'm, I'm so ready to promote this everywhere I can. Mm-hmm. So just keep us updated on, on how this model develops. And, you know, definitely, uh, you mentioned COVID. Um, so these last couple of uh, questions will be kind of COVID related. I think that this is where a lot of us in schools, this is where a lot of our trauma-informed practice um, is focused right now. Although what I really appreciate about this conversation is how you've shown us that this has been a reality for a really, really long time, that trauma has been a reality for a really long time and, and education has not been sufficiently trauma-informed for a really long time. Um, but we're kind of in this, um, in this moment. Um, and one of the truly tremendous resources that I got from you was this uh, COVID ER plan. Um, and, um, and so I'm really curious as to how this plan was created in, um, your, in your organization and what ways you found it to be a useful resource for people working in schools and beyond. Yeah. Um, well, before COVID, we had things called emotional regulation plans and they're really helping kids recognize their triggers, recognize what's making it hard for them to learn. And then, Um, we have a checklist of like, what, what helps you learn? What do you need? And having it written out as a checklist enables kids to kind of say, yeah, that works for me. Or yeah, that is a problem. Instead of them having to create it themselves, which sometimes when you're alone, 
you know, you feel like you're the only one experiencing this. When you see it on a list, you're like, you're not the only one. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Someone else knows about this. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, we adapted it for, for COVID because so often we go to creating a solution without seeking the feedback of children, right? We create behavior plans and yeah. we're theorizing like what's causing some difficulties, but we just have to ask kids. We have to trust kids and go back to just yeah. talking to them about it. So this is just a, you know, a, a tool where you can connect with kids and give them an opportunity to share their voice in this difficult time. Um, and my biggest fear is that we're going to go back to schools Kids yeah. are going to have lost so much control over their lives that they're going to go back to the classroom. They're going to be so excited to be there. They're going to seek agency. It's a natural desire, like hunger or thirst, to, yeah. to have control and to, to have autonomy. You know, And they'll go into the classroom and be seen as defiant or oppositional or... Or just um, out of control. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and then they'll be sent out again when actually a, a response to a traumatic event is to, to seek those kind of things. So um, going back into schools, it's really essential that we, we recognize our own need for control and the need of control for children and the need right. for connection and to center our instruction around, around those things. Yeah. Um, and then kids are going to learn better if you're yeah. not resisting those natural impulses to heal. Yeah. Do you think it, do you think it's going to be kind of a, a tough sell for, um, for the system, particularly district and building leaders, but also a lot of teachers to say, also, we don't think we can be back to the way things were right. Mm -hmm. That, that we should actually prioritize some things that we were talking about during COVID before COVID that were, exacerbated during COVID. Do you anticipate that that'll be a tough sell for some districts? I think in the last 20 years, since No Child Left Behind took place, almost 20 years, um, yeah. we've really moved to this focus on purely on academics, right? We've pushed out yep. all yep. of our, you know, additional courses, music, art, That's right. shop. We saw those as not essential. We went purely to academics. Yep. And so that's been a recent thing, but when we threw out all those other things, we threw out a child's ability to regulate or feel some sense of, of purpose or connection yeah. with the instruction. And so for people who've only taught since No Child Left Behind, I think it's hard to conceive of what else that looks like. Yeah. But um, we're, we're going to get back to that uh, a model and, and innovate it in, for the future in a way that that brings that purpose and meaning and connection back to learning. Yeah. Um, so you're I'm saying that that's, that that's one of the really optimistic things that I've heard is, is that in order to sort of address the, the post pandemic world, it actually is useful to go to the past and to a time when, you know, the educational process wasn't so, um, so alienating and so academically driven and so brain driven in the sense of, you know, intellectually driven and that kind of stuff, as opposed to spiritually driven or humanly driven. You're actually saying that we have a, a little bit of an example of what we can draw from in order to kind of uh, move forward uh, once, you know, once we've got this vaccine and once we're moving back into classrooms sort of, sort of normally. Yeah, I think it's a myth to think we can learn things without emotion and without um, connection to our own experience. And we've been teaching with that myth for, for a long time now. Yeah, And yeah. Um, the truth is that the way that we learn in our brains is through passing through emotion. You know, like it's passing yeah. through connection. So the more we go back to that kind of way of learning, um, the, the better all schools will be, the better outcomes for our students. Yeah. One last um, question. So um, whenever it is that schools are open for 100% in-person learning, I walk down the hall, I walk into my classroom, the bell rings for students to start coming into class. What awaits me, do you think, as a, a middle and high school teacher? What will that first day back look like? And how should I, how should I be thinking about that and preparing for it? I think it's going to be kids who want connection, who want to like just 
have you talk to them and to to be heard about what their experience is. When people go through a crisis, they want to tell you what it was like for them. They want to talk yeah. about um, what's been going on for them. And we need to make time for that. We're so stressed that they've fallen behind in learning. Um, but really, they learn so much in this time. They're, they're learning so much about how to be oh, I love that. Finally, somebody saying this. <laughs> yeah. They, they're learning so much right now, even if they're not... Um, you know, doing all these math problems, even if they're right, not right. like proficient in, in writing a five paragraph essay or something, they, they have, are learning really valuable life skills that are, they're going to carry with them forever. So let's acknowledge those. Let's talk about Absolutely. what, you not, what did you miss out on? What do we have to catch up on? Yeah. What did you learn in these, in this wow. year? Wow. It would be a great way to frame it because they've learned so much. Yeah. And I imagine it's going to be noisy. Um, I imagine that there will be people that they haven't seen in close to a year and mm -hmm. uh, that, and I, and I imagine they're going to be very excited to be back together with each other. And even in some cases to be back with their teachers, um, as we're hearing them, they will have missed school. Can't tell you how many kids have uh, emailed me, messaged me saying, I never thought I would say that I miss mm -hmm. school, you know? And so maybe I should also be ready for it to be a little bit, a little bit uh, noisy and energetic. Um, but again, you know what I hear you saying that this isn't something that it doesn't sound like something that you've discovered during COVID as a researcher. It seems like something that we just know that that people's experiences have to be validated and have to be given space to speak to them and share them. And um, and when and when they don't have a forum to share those things, that's when we see these incidences of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, um, stress, you know, all those kinds of things that play out in this way. So it just kind of sounds like, yeah, this, uh, this collective global trauma is really significant and we still need to deal with it the way we would deal with and in any trauma-informed environment. Uh, Maya Angelou says hope and fear can't coexist, right? So you got to choose one, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. are you going to go into the classroom with like the fear that wow. you've got to catch up and you have so much pressure? Or are you yeah. going to go into the classroom like, we just went through a really huge thing and yep. learned so much from it. And I'm really hopeful that this is changing the way that we view the world. We just yeah. put a spotlight on every problem in society yeah. and we see them so much more clearly now we can do something about it. Now is our time to take action. And that's kind of that concept of post-traumatic growth that we yeah. have, we've gone through a collective experience. Like I'm not alone in that. I feel more connected yeah. to you than ever. That's amazing. You know, yeah. let's not put all the fears of like, oh, there's going to be so many problems. Like, no, I'm really hopeful that we've had all this time to reflect and, and we're going to create some amazing solutions together. That's brilliant. Oh, it's amazing. So uh, how do listeners find your work, support the work, initiatives, opportunities that you offer, social media, et cetera? How, how do people find the work that you're doing and that the work that the Center for Cognitive Diversity is doing? Um, yeah, we are on Twitter and Facebook and we have a website. It's uh, shortened. It's a really long term. So <laughs> cogdiv, C-O-G-I-V. Yes. <laughs> So we're cogdiv.com and yep. we have monthly guest lecture series with people like putting trauma-informed work into practice. Uh, we have four times a year, we have cohorts of trauma-informed specialists where you, you know, we start a, a community where we meet twice a month to talk about the work. We attend seminars yep. and courses so people can join our cohorts and become trauma-informed specialists. Um, and we offer reflective supervision if people don't have that space to really meet with yep. peers and talk about the work, they can, they can join our online spaces. And we have educators from Arkansas and Maine and Miami and, uh, all over coming together. So we'd love to have you. That's great. Well, folks, um, definitely follow the work that they're doing at the Center of Cognitive Diversity. Um, Emily Santiago, thank you for taking time on this weekend to speak to us here at Two Dope Teachers and a mic. Um, really fun conversation, and we'll be following your work uh, going forward. Yeah, thank you so much, Gerardo and Kevin. Happy birthday. Yep. All right. <laughs> I'll be following you as well. So we do have one more extremely critical question that we have to 
ask Emily Santiago of the Center for Cognitive Diversity. Ms. Santiago, top five rappers. Top five rappers. Well, I, being in Oakland for 20 years, I have to say Kamaya. Oh, um, all right. <laughs> amazing. And Tupac, of course. But all right. I, I've been loving Anderson Pack's song, Lockdown. Yes. Uh, and then I, I love Odyssey. I don't know if you've seen Odyssey. He's yes. Look at you. This is great. Okay. So let's see. So, so let me, wait, let me make sure I got them all. So we got Kamai, we got Anderson Pack, we got Tupac, we got Odyssey. Did I miss one? Uh, well, I'd say Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar. Oh, Kendrick. That's right. All right. Very good. So are they ranked in any way or is this, um, is just the five? I'm, I listen to Kamaya all the time. I have to say there's, there's not enough representation of female rappers. So she's, no, she's at all one right now at all. So, um, you know, this isn't, um, I'm not scoring you. Um, but you know, one, one of the things we look at with these lists is, you know, who's on the list. It's on a lot of lists and who's on the list that hasn't come up yet. And so I would say two of your five are brand new too. And I think that's pretty good. So we haven't had anybody mention Kamaya yet. Haven't anybody had anybody mention Odyssey yet. Um, collectively, what do you think those, um, those three or those five artists um, say about kind of what you're thinking about these days? I think they're storytellers. Kamaya, you know, it's like, how does it feel to just live? Is this is like a lyric that she has. Yeah. And it's so reflective of how people are feeling. So it's again, like, you know, they're mirroring people's experience, which is so impactful. So yeah, and a Anderson Pock's work is so interesting and intersectional and layered. Um, you know, if you want to see, for for me, if you want to see the um, the complexity of living as a person of color with all these different identities, like Anderson Pock will help you see that, and mm -hmm. uh, and you'll definitely see those experiences really well. Um, Pac, Pac is interesting, um, you know, one that I can't get enough of. Um, it's so amazing to me how many young people who never experienced Tupac in their lifetimes um, as, as a living person, um, you know, hold them in the same regard, maybe even in higher regard than, than I did at the time, you know, as a kid mm -hmm. from the 90s. So uh, it's amazing stuff. Uh, cool. I'm so glad we got that piece in really important so important um she is emily santiago i am gerardo munoz and we want to invite you on this december afternoon as we finish the end of the semester to always and you can say this with me stay dope you want to try that so always stay dope all right